This week on the show, we have FreeBSD internship learnings, also cover exciting developments coming to FreeBSD sooner or later, uh, running FreeNAS on DigitalOcean, little how-to there, network manager control for OpenBSD, OpenZFS user conference videos are available, and batch editing files with Ed in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 247, interning for FreeBSD, recorded on the 23rd of May, 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jew. Glad to have you with us this week. Uh, we have exciting headlines uh, that read what I learned during my FreeBSD internship. So that sounds interesting, so I might as well put up my FreeBSD hat. Yes. Uh, but Alan is reading that story. <laughs> apparently okay yeah. uh so this is a guest blog post on the FreeBSD foundation's blog you know where benedict is the vice president not reading the story <laughs> well anyway. uh, i <laughs> so, should take um, all the credit <laughs> over the summer um the FreeBSD foundation had an intern from the uh, university of waterloo working on FreeBSD, uh and this is the story of how their summer went so they say Hi, my name is uh, Mitchell Horn. I'm a computer science engineering student uh, at the University of Waterloo and currently in my third years of studies. And I uh, was fortunate enough to be able uh, to do the FreeBSD Foundation's co-op student uh, for the January to April semester. During this time, I worked under Ed Mast in the FreeBSD Foundation's small Kitchener office along with uh, another co-op student named Arshan Kanafar. Uh, my term was... Uh, has now come to an end, and so I'd like to share a little bit about my experience as a newcomer to FreeBSD and to open source development. Uh, so it begins a bit with the background uh, and a small admission of guilt. Uh, I'm saying uh, they've been an open source user for a large part of their life. Uh, they say, when I was a teenager, I started playing around with Linux, uh, which opened my eyes to the wider world of free software. Other than some small contributions to GNOME, uh, my experience has been mostly as an end user. However, the value of these projects and the open source philosophy uh, was not lost on me, and most of what motivated my interest in this position. Before beginning the term, I had no personal experience with any of the BSDs, although I knew of their existence and was extremely excited to receive the position. I knew it would be a great opportunity for growth, but I also uh, must confess that my naivete about FreeBSD caused me to make the silent assumption that it would be a form of compromise, a stepping stone that would eventually allow me to work on open source projects that are somehow greater or more legitimate than FreeBSD. After four months spent immersed in the project, I have learned how it operates, witnessed its community, and learned about its history. I am happy to admit that uh, I was completely mistaken, saying uh, it now seems obvious, but FreeBSD is a project that has its own distinct uses, goals, and identity. Uh, for many, uh, there may exist no greater opportunity than to work on FreeBSD full-time, and with that, I know how I would uh, have a hard time coming up with a project that was more legitimate. Uh, so they're going to go on to talk a little bit about what they liked about the, the term. Uh, it says... In all cases, the work I submitted this term was received by no less or reviewed by no less than two people before being committed. 
the feedback and criticism I received was always both constructive and to the point, and it commented on everything from high-level ideas uh, and design to small style issues. I appreciate having these thorough reviews in place since I believe it ultimately encourages people to accept only their best work. Uh, it is indicative of the high quality that already exists within every aspect of the project, and this commitment to quality is something that should continue to be honed uh, or honored as a core value of the project. As I've discovered in some of my previous work terms, it is all too easy to cut corners in the name of a deadline or changing priorities, but the fact that FreeBSD doesn't need to make these types of compromises is a testament to the power of free software. It's a small thing, but the quality and completeness of the FreeBSD documentation was hugely helpful throughout my term. Everything you might need to know about utilities, library functions, the kernel, and more can be found in the manual pages. And the handbook is a great resource for both an introduction to the operating system and as a reference. I only wish I had taken some time earlier in the term to explore the different documents uh, more thoroughly as they cover a wide range of interesting and useful topics. The efforts people put into writing and maintaining FreeBSD's documentation is easy to overlook, but the value cannot be overstated. Uh, so then they go on to what they learned uh, from their experience and say, although there was a lot I enjoyed, there were certainly many struggles I faced throughout the term and lessons to be learned from them. I expected that uh, some of the issues I faced may be specific to FreeBSD, while others may be common to open source projects in general. I don't have enough experience to speculate uh, on which is which, so I'll leave that up to the reader. So uh, this is uh, an especially big one. Uh, I think it applies to all of open source, but especially FreeBSD. The first lesson can be summarized uh, or summed up pretty simply. Uh, you have to advocate for your own work. The FreeBSD is made up of a large part by volunteer effort, uh, and in many cases, there is more work to go around than people available to do it. A consequence of this is that there will not be anybody there uh, checking up on you. Even in my position where I actually had a direct supervisor, Ed often had his own plate full and with many other things that the responsibilities to find someone to look at my work uh, fell on me alone. Admittedly, a couple of smaller changes I worked on got left behind or stuck in review simply because there wasn't a clear person or place uh, to reach out to to get the review to push it forward. Uh, he says, I think this is both a barrier to entry to FreeBSD and a mental hurdle that I needed to get over. If there's a change you want to see included or reviewed, then you may have to be the one uh, that pushes for it, and there's nothing wrong with that. Perhaps this process should be easier uh, for newcomers uh, and infrequent contributors, uh, commenting on the disconnect between Bugzilla and Fabricator uh, and so on. But we also have to be aware that simply isn't uh, reality right now. Getting your work looked at may require a little bit more self-motivation uh, and you know noise-making, but I'd argue that there are much worse uh, problems a project like FreeBSD could have rather than this. Um, I understand this is a lot better now, uh, but it's still something I struggle with. Uh, I'm not naturally the type of person who easily connects with other people or asks for help, so I see this as an area of future growth rather than a simply a struggle I encountered and overcame over the course of the work term. Certainly, it is an important skill to understand the value of your own work and equally important in the ability to communicate that value to others. Yeah, that's certainly true. Because, uh, some of these observations are quite accurate. It, it kind of goes to, you know, we talk about open source and scratching your own itch. Um, mm. 
those are the type of projects where you have more motivation to make it happen. So you spend more time on it and you spend more time getting people to look at it and nagging people and yeah, yeah. hunting them down. <laughs> really grinding uh, your teeth so in it. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas when it's just something you're doing and you don't care that strongly about it, maybe you're not going to quite lean in on, uh, on it so much. Mm. Yeah, that's some of the passion that I see in many of the newcomers and that drives ultimately their, their efforts towards their own commitments or whatever. Yeah, it's, you know, lots of people want to commit to FreeBSD uh, and we'd love to have them, but when you ask them what they want to work on, they don't know. And it's like, well, I can, I can just pick an area and assign it to you, but you're just going to get frustrated and want to give up. You have to pick something that you have enough desire to get done uh, so that you'll be able to push through the, you know, the, I just don't want to work on this anymore kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, so, going on, uh, Mitchell says, I also learned the importance of starting small. My first week or two on the job mainly involved getting set up and comfortable with the workflow. After my initial stage, I began exploring the project and found myself overwhelmed by its scale. With so many possible areas to investigate and so much work happening at once, I felt quite lost as to where to begin. Many of the potential projects I found were too far beyond my experience level and most small bugs were picked up and fixed so quickly uh, by more experienced contributors that I never got a chance to work on them. It's easy to make the mistake that FreeBSD is made up solely of a few rockstar committers that do everything. This is how it appears it on the face sometimes, uh, as reading through the commit logs, the bug reports, or the mailing list yields a few of the same names over and over. The reality is that just as important are the hundreds of users and infrequent contributors who take the time to submit bug reports, patches, and feedback. Even though uh, there are some people who would fall under the umbrella of a rockstar committer, they don't uh, get there overnight. Rather, they build up their skill and knowledge through many years of involvement in FreeBSD and similar projects. Oh yeah, that's certainly true. Yeah. Uh, as a student coming into this project and having high expectations for myself, uh, it was easy to set a bar too high uh, by comparing myself against some of those big committers and I feel that my work was insignificant, inadequate, or simply too infrequent. In reality, there is no reason I should have felt this way. Uh, in a way, this comparison is disrespectful to those who have reached this level, as it took them a long time to get there. And there's a, a humbling reminder that any skill worth learning requires time, patience, and dedication. It's easy to focus on the end product and simply wish it uh, to be there, uh, but in order to be truly successful, you must uh, start small, find satisfaction in the struggle of learning something new. And he says, I take pride in the many small successes I've had throughout the term here and appreciate the fact that my journey into FreeBSD and open source uh, is just at its beginning. Yeah. So uh, then they have some closing thoughts. Uh, so they say, I would like to close with a brief thank you. Uh, first to everyone at the foundation for being so helpful and allowing the position to exist in the first place. Uh, I'm extremely grateful to have been uh, given this opportunity to learn about and give back to the open source world. Uh, I'd like to especially thank office mates, Ed, for being an excellent mentor who offered an endless wealth of knowledge and willingness to share it. Uh, and my classmate and fellow intern, Arshan, for giving me a sense of camaraderie and comfort reminding that in many moments, uh, they were just as lost as I was. Uh, <laughs> finally, a quick thanks to everyone else I crossed paths with who offered review and advice on, on the work. I appreciate your help and look forward to working with you further. 
Uh, it says, I'm walking away from this co-op with a much greater appreciation of this project and have made it a goal to remain involved in some capacity. I feel that I've gained a little bit of a wider perspective on my place in the software world, something I never really got from any of the previous work terms. Uh, whether it ends up being just a stepping stone or the beginning of much larger involvement, I thoroughly enjoyed my time here. Well, yeah, that's certainly a good uh, wrap-up of the whole time. And uh, thank you, Mitchell, and especially Ed and uh, the other co-working students who worked on these projects and, uh, you know, did all the mentoring and uh, organization behind the scenes for. Uh, and I think there's a lot of things, big and small, happened in those co-ops that, who knows, might uh, become a part of the project in the future in some way or the other. Okay, so now I'm taking off this hat because this item is done. And the next one is recent developments in FreeBSD. So we titled it this way because we couldn't find a uh, proper title for it because it's some of these things um, it's that are on the horizon. It's just random things that have happened in the last two weeks. Yeah, so things that we got excited about and wanted to mention on the show. So the first one is uh, the first support one for it. is uh, the culmination of more than 10 years of work, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, sure, but it has a history. <laughs> on AMD 64, ARM 64, i386, PowerPC, PowerPC 64, and Spark 64 for FreeBSD, um, the kernels are now compiled by default with um, the kernel crash dump support, encrypted crash dump support, compressed crash dump support, and network dump support. Yeah, so uh, we get so a lot now, of ways. when your kernel crashes, uh, the crash dump can be compressed with gzip or Z standard uh, and getting you better compression. Uh, it supports encrypted crash dumps in case you know your machines are sensitive and you don't want the what's in memory laying around uh, after a crash. And network crash dumps. So if your machine doesn't have enough spare space uh, to dump all of its RAM to disk, you can dump to the network. I know that's been an issue a couple of times. It's like, well, when you have hundreds of gigs of RAM, you really don't want to have like a whole SSD just to be able to crash to in case you ever need that. Um, and so network dumps uh, are very nice. Mm -hmm. And uh, But now that the network dump support is finished and the encrypted dump support is finished, it's now enabled by default. Oh yeah, excellent. So we have a much better way of collecting these and figuring out what the underlying problems are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as Dexter says in the chat room, <laughs> better late than never. The network dump code has its uh, origins going back so old that it's old enough to vote now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sometimes some things take longer than expected. And uh, yeah, but now that they're there or at least um, in head, is that in head? Yep. Yeah. Okay. And then, so, uh, so the next item is uh, more work sponsored by the FreeBSD Foundation. And this is a tool to split the, micros uh, the, the Intel microcode updates into separate files. So in the new format, uh, Intel will give out microcode with individual files for type of CPU instead of just one big file. Uh, and so the tools are switching to only accepting the one file, but all the existing microcode we have is in the one big file format. So this is a tool that will split these up and uh, allow for our newer interface that'll support the newer types of uh, uh, microcode that Intel's working on releasing as they uh, try to address more of these specter and meltdown type vulnerabilities. 
Yeah, this will keep us busy uh, basically throughout the year as more things are being revealed about those. Uh, but the tool is um, an important piece of that to update the microcode on these chips. Yep. Um, you know, again, it's kind of the foundation in its role of the work that we all need, but none of us makes any money off of. <laughs> yeah, it's this tool... It's important, but it's not the feature that you would use every day for the yeah. rest of your computing history life. Um, but certainly, it's needed. So the next item is uh, the Intel Speculative Store Bypass Disable Control. Which just yeah, this like ties a bunch into... of random words stuck together. <laughs> but yeah. SSB, or Speculative Store Bypass, is a uh, speculative execution side-channel vulnerability that was identified by Google's Project Zero at the Microsoft Security Response Center. Um, and in uh, if you have the updated Intel microcode, it adds a new MSR that allows you to disable uh, that feature to mitigate the vulnerability. Um, so now there's a new sysctl, hw.spec-store-bypass-disable uh, to provide a global control over the SSBD bit um, akin to the existing IBRS feature. So if it's set to zero, then it's off. If it's set to one, it's on. And if it's set to two, it's auto. Um, there's also future work coming, which will enable applications to control it on a per-process basis uh, so that they can differ from, you know, you can turn it on globally, but off for the one app that it breaks or something like that. Mm. Okay, another important utility. Uh, well, it's not really a utility, it's kernel functionality, but yeah. Yeah, the switching back and forth or on and off. Um, next up in that list is Raspberry Pi 3 B plus Ethernet driver. So there has been a, an updated revision of the Raspberry Pi 3. Um, and that one has apparently a microchip uh, controller that needs to be supported on FreeBSD, of course, and apparently this is now working, and this is also part of the work that uh, Arshan did as his uh, co-op, um, as part of his co-op work, and uh, yeah, the two Ethernet uh, controllers that are there uh, are now supported. There's one um, that's built-in USB hub, and the other one is uh, basically uh, USB 3.1, and there will also be documentation how to use these, and yeah, this is the Ethernet controller for the Raspberry Pi 3B+. Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, I also picked out a couple of interesting things that are coming up. Uh, more on the Spectre mitigation stuff, there's uh, IBRS support uh, for i386, which Actually, it seems uh, was committed last night after after I wrote the show notes, uh, but before we displayed them today. Right on yes, time. Uh, okay. This was committed this morning. Uh, huh. So Fresh. there is now IBRS support uh, on i 36 in FreeBSD head. So that okay. doesn't even go under upcoming anymore. It's yeah, it's already happened. Yeah, so <laughs> we'll move we things around in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> and then related to uh, that Intel microcode update, there's also updates to the dev CPU data port uh, to update the AMD microcode, uh, so you can keep that up to date on your system as well. So that's coming soon, uh, mm -hmm. and we'll have uh, support for the new firmware formats or microcode formats for both and. Uh, 
firmware data for both Intel and AMD CPUs. Yep. And then uh, if you're into networking, uh, there's a post that just came up uh, from Randall Stewart at Netflix, uh, which is upstreaming their work on the rack uh, TCP IP networking stack um, from Netflix into the FreeBSD tree. So this is the, uh, I forget what the R stands for. Uh, them, yeah. Something like that. Uh, Could be, anyway, yeah. It's a, a new high performance network stack that's uh, good. <laughs> uh, so if you do a lot of high packet rate stuff or uh, anything like that, it's definitely worth uh, checking this out uh, and making sure that if there are any issues, they can be addressed before it gets committed instead of after. Yep, uh, earlier is better, and then the fixes won't even, uh, or the, the bugs won't even be in the release. So people will only see working code or can use working code. Very nice. So yeah, we'll look forward to these things. And um, yeah, um, of course, there's always developments happening and some of these take longer. Some of these are a little bit uh, further away from realization, but they will happen eventually. And uh, yeah, we'll keep you updated if there's more exciting news. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of that, uh, there is some stuff going on. <laughs> Uh, so, I uh, guess technically it was 48 minutes ago, uh, voting in the FreeBSD <laughs> core election started. It's that time of the year again, yeah, or every two well, years. That time is every two years, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, for the people who don't know about this, so FreeBSD's, uh, let's say, governing Leadership. structure is elected. So every two years we elect a number of people, nine of them, um, as the core team. And um, this way, there's this uh, consensus-based democracy versus, you know, uh, the benevolent dictatorship. So we chose the consensus one, and that's where people can, you know, vote for certain candidates. Uh, up to nine votes, I think, is um, yes. uh, doable. The core team is made up of nine people. Everybody who's made a commit, uh, or every committer to FreeBSD that's been active in the last year uh, gets to vote and you pick the nine people off the list of this year 16 people um, and that's how and then whoever which is ever those people get the the most the first uh, nine votes, that's the the new core team mm -hmm. and I think developers have so this is only for FreeBSD developers so mm -hmm. outside people don't have uh, a vote in this and they have four weeks roughly to vote so yes. considering holiday uh, time and conferences and closes on June 20th at 1800 UTC. Okay. And we'll make sure to uh, let you know who has won as well as whether Alan and I will be on the next core again, because we also uh, so, uh, ran quick rundown of the candidates uh, for this core election. Uh, myself and Benedict are running again. We just happen to be alphabetically first on the list. <laughs> Not a conspiracy there, I swear. Um, then uh, Ruslan Bukin uh, from Cambridge, uh, who's been doing a lot of work on RISC-V5 and so on. Uh, Brooks Davis, Michael Dexter, uh, Devin Teske, Aiden Adler, Hiroki Sato, Warner Losh, Jeff Roberson, uh, John Baldwin, Josh Petzl, uh, Chris Moore, Martin Wilkie, uh, Sean Chittenden and Nicholas Sizing. 
Okay. Well, then let's so, let the voting begin. Nine of those people will make up the next core team. Yep. So, uh, and the current core team will be um, uh, still in office until July 4th, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And then uh, there's the, switch over. The results and, of the election will be announced on Wednesday, June 27th. Uh, so we'll bring those to you live and we'll have live election coverage <laughs> here on BSD now um, and that the <laughs> they'll take office the next Wednesday uh, which is July 4th okay very nice which will only be a holiday for the Americans I think although actually when does that land on the calendar right yes uh, it's the Monday that'll be a holiday in Canada mm. okay this week's episode of BSD Now is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Head over to digitalocean.com and don't forget, if you're a first-time registrant, get your promotion code that Alan has for you because you yes, get a lot. If you, go to, if you go to the URL do.co slash bsdnow, it'll take you to a special secret page where if you sign up, they'll give you $100 credit in your account to play with for 60 days. That's something for yeah. virtual machines in the cloud. And you can. Um, but if you already have an account but haven't used a coupon code previously, use our regular old fashioned coupon code FreeBSDNow and you will get $10 added to your account. That's already something to start with. And mm -hmm. uh, you can start with a small machine and scale it up the way you like it. Or you run it um, for like a month or so and try certain things. And then stop it again or destroy it, and then you won't get built um, for further um, cycles. Yeah. Um, and actually, our next story also covers DigitalOcean, so stay tuned for that. But one of the other nice things about DigitalOcean is they also pay people to write tutorials. Oh, yeah, in the so community section. They have 44 tutorials tagged as FreeBSD uh, on their website, uh, and you can covers all kinds of things from how to SSH securely using Kryptonite uh, through, you know, using uh, installing things and how to track network latency with FreeBSD or how to configure encrypted ZFS pools on DigitalOcean block storage uh, or configuring NTPD or a DNS resolver or whatever you want. You know, how to install Ruby on Rails using FreeBSD. Yeah. And if there's the not a tutorial for what you want to do, uh, figure it out and then click this write a tutorial button and they'll pay you to write the tutorial. Exactly. It doesn't have to be all on DigitalOcean. Uh, it can also be a tutorial how to set up, I don't know, Kubernetes because it's the hot new thing. And they also have an announcement that Kubernetes is coming soon to DigitalOcean. So uh, in September, apparently. So stay tuned for that. And while you're waiting, you should explore the other things that DigitalOcean has to offer. And yeah, try it out for yourself. That's the best way of figuring out whether this is something uh, that you can use in your um, business or even in your private life, yeah. little machine yeah. here and there. Whether you want uh, the smallest $5 droplet with a gig of RAM or if you need something much bigger, they can do it all for you. And it's all billed hourly and it's super easy. They've Great control panel or an API if you want to do it programmatically. Uh, great command line tools for using the API. Whatever you need to do, super easy. Great support and tutorials. 
Uh, and you get to choose from lots of locations, whether you want it in San Francisco, New York, Toronto, London, Frankfurt, Amsterdam, Bangalore, or Singapore. Yeah, those are the ones. So one of those should be close to you, and that will give you the proper connectivity and uh, closeness to your virtual machine, which are called droplets in DigitalOcean. Mm -hmm. All right. Our next story is, as Alan mentioned, a connection to this little ad space here, uh, running FreeNAS on a DigitalOcean droplet. So that sounds interesting, or at least as an interesting uh, combination, because typically you would think you would get your FreeNAS uh, box at home and don't uh, necessarily run it in the well, cloud. In this particular case, they have a FreeNAS at home and they want to back it up somewhere in the cloud. But they don't want to just give somebody else their files. They want to use FreeNAS. Ah, yeah, that's uh, an interesting use case. Um, so it starts with, need to back up your FreeNAS off-site? Run a lockdown instance in the cloud and replicate to it. The tutorial okay. that we have this, here... This is, those are, that's my summary uh, of yeah. this thing. Sure, sure. So, yeah, the, the blog post says, I've needed an off-site FreeNAS setup to replicate things too, to run some things and do some other stuff. Basically, my own privately owned, tightly controlled NAS application in the cloud. One I controlled from top to bottom and with support for whatever crazy things I wanted to do. Since I'm using DigitalOcean as my main VPS provider, it seemed logical to run a FreeNAS there. However, you can't, right? FreeNAS isn't one of the options in the dropdown when you create a new droplet. However, using the same method we've talked about before for installing OpenBSD or NetBSD or Dragonfly on DigitalOcean, you can install FreeNAS. Mm. Cool. Do you want to yeah, walk so through the that, steps that's I noted? The, yep, that's the FreeNAS part. Uh, this has actually nicely uh, done this how-to with screenshots and all, so you can follow along. And uh, So yeah, as Alan said, we need to do this manually. There's no pre-built uh, FreeNAS that you can just select, but the installation is uh, pretty straightforward. You should be able to um, follow along with the screenshots. Um, so basically, after you um, run through that, then it's back to... Are we back to DigitalOcean then to do some uh, things in their UI? Or is it all now in the, in the virtual uh, machine? Start at the top. Okay, so here we go. The um, so three things that you need to do uh, before you begin. Um, you need a droplet, of course, in DigitalOcean. So, without a coupon code or on your own credit card, that's uh, up to you. Um, that will use to re-image uh, re the boot block device with the FreeNAS ISO because it has to be um, installed somehow. So it has to have a FreeNAS ISO available to install. Uh, then we'll install the FreeNAS on the second block device. Why? We'll explain later on. And once we're done with that, we're going to do the old switcheroo. Uh, we're going to re-image the original boot block device, and then we're using the now FreeNAS installed second block device. That's the trick to make it work. Well, yeah, basically, you can't... Uh, the installer can't install over top of the installer. Right? Yeah. So, so <laughs> you start with a FreeBSD instance in DigitalOcean, and add a block device. Then on the block device, you download the FreeNAS installer, and then you, you take that FreeNAS installer and write it over the boot disk, and reboot, and it'll boot the FreeNAS installer. Then you have the FreeNAS installer 
install to the block device. Uh, then yeah. you reboot again, but you've had DigitalOcean re-image the boot disk with FreeBSD again. Uh, although I imagine you could do it from the shell in the FreeNAS installer if they offered that as an option in there. Anyway, then you copy the FreeNAS install from the block device back to the boot device, and then you can throw the block device away and stop paying for it. And you only used it for an hour, so it costs you like half a cent. Um, and now when you reboot again, you have an installed FreeNAS running. Yep. All of a sudden, a new uh, installation pops up. And uh, so that's what you start with. And so for the people who are not familiar too much with uh, FreeNAS, um, it's all GUI-based or web GUI-based. So it's pretty well, easy to use. To it too, but... Yeah. Sure, um, but I guess for creating certain things, it's easier to just click and don't uh, mess with config files. But that's up to you. Um, so uh, you need to point your browser to your DigitalOcean droplets IP that's been uh, displayed or that's basically been given to you once the droplet's been created. And um, so again, this is a demo only. Uh, there's no SSL setup, so it's not very secure, um, but you can do those additional steps on your own. This is just to get it uh, up and running. Um, so there are some other, um, so there's an initial wizard um, that, that will prompt you for certain things um, to prevent certain mistakes that are made often or um, do certain things that shouldn't be done. So um, that will walk you through some of the items there. And yeah then you should have a super awesome storage appliance in the cloud. Uh, what you can do then, because DigitalOcean also offers uh, block storage, you can add those too, and then they will immediately uh, show up in your uh, uh, FreeNAS. And there's an example screenshot here where there's a simple stripe from two such block devices are being made, and then you can uh, share those on the internet using Samba, Volt, don't share it on the internet. Probably uh, for uh, everyone. This case, it's a backup free NAS, <laughs> so you turn most of all the services off and just yeah, have so replication going from your NAS to this cloud NAS. Yeah, only that. No, no one else should be able to access that. Yeah. Oh yeah, and then oh yeah, the screenshots are very nice and accurate, and see what what it looks like, and uh, yeah, yeah. This and should then you be... can just use the free NAS replication wizard to set up sending snapshots from your home NAS to the, your cloud NAS. And uh, also as a note at the end, I say that uh, you can consider creating a new block device to actually create your main pool. You know, if you make uh, your free NAS with a, a small DigitalOcean droplet that's only got like 30 gigs of space, um, and you can do that and have the, uh, the main pool, all your storage done on the DigitalOcean block device, which you can grow over time more easily. Uh, and then you'll have whatever size storage you need for your pool. Sure. Yeah, so, and from there you can do um, a lot more stuff within FreeNAS. Again, this is in the uh, evil internet, so be careful, yes, and but it's available. The other advantage to the separate block device is it makes it easier to move it to a fresh DigitalOcean droplet if you, say, want to install a newer version of FreeNAS or something. Time for the news roundup this week. Uh, we have a story here about Network Manager Control for OpenBSD, and this one has been updated, so it's 
even more interesting to read on the show. It's about the network manager uh, for OpenBSD, and um, this begins with uh, the generalities. Uh, I'm just I just remind the scope of this small tool. This allows you to predefine several cable or Wi-Fi connections. Uh, let's NMCTL uh, control automatically the first available one and allow you to easily switch from one network connection to another. Uh, so this is, um, if you have a lot of connections or a lot of networks available, this is kind of convenient. And also creates an open box dynamic menu. So that's a bit uh, more into the GUI integration part. And the enhancements in that version are, uh, this is the second development version, so this is 0 0.2. Uh, there were performance um, changes, or no, not, not just performance, um, several changes in code. Uh, there were code style cleanups to better match the Python recommendations and adopt a tool to allow to connect to an open Wi-Fi having blanks in the name. That's kind of important. You would think, eh, blanks in the name, how hard could it be? But eh, it needs to be supported. Uh, this happens in some of the hotels. Uh, yeah, I stayed at a hotel last week, which had uh, not so good Wi-Fi, uh, so I had to <laughs> tether the whole time with my phone, um, but that's uh, not a story. Uh, the source code is still on the Git of source code, uh, sourceforge.net, sorry. Uh, the files are available in uh, the typical uh, Git style, and you can uh, grab it from there if you're interested in this. So um, apparently there was a bit of feedback from a couple of months back, and uh, uh, the script on, is used on the OpenBSD uh, laptop since about five months from the developer. Uh, in that particular case, uh, it's mainly used in the open box menu and the restart option. So in case you're roaming around and um, moving to another network, then you use the restart option to regenerate that menu and see the currently available Wi-Fi hotspots or any other uh, networks. The open box menus uh, are working fine. As explained in the previous blog post, um, I just have to create two entries in the open box menu, XML file, and all the rest comes automatically from, from the NMCTL itself, thanks to the list and scan options. So that gives you a little bit more uh, comfort and just, oh, look, there's a new network. Oh, look, there's a new SSID appearing. So apparently this is not changed uh, in NMCTL, parts uh, since it works as expected at least for the author and uh, the restart option uh, because I'm very lazy that one goes and because OpenBSD is very simple to use I've added the command nmctl dash dash restart in etc apm resume uh, thanks to apmd the script will be used each time I'm opening the lid of my laptop this is nice so you just open and have directly your connectivity to the Wi-Fi's around you in other words, each time I'm opening my laptop, NMCTL will search the optimum network connection for me and connect to that. But I had several issues in this scenario. So most of the problems were linked to the ARP table issues. Indeed, in some circumstances, my proxy IP address was associated to the cable interface instead of the Wi-Fi interface or vice versa. Uh, so as a consequence, I'm not able to connect to the proxy, thus not able to connect to the internet. So the ping to Google, which is the final test NMCTL performs, is failing. Knowing that, anyhow, I'm doing a full ARP cleanup. It's not clear to me uh, from where this problem came from. Uh, to solve the situation, I've implemented a retry concept. In other words, before testing in another possible network connection, as listed in the NMCTL config file, the script uh, will try three times the current connection's parameters, and if that fails, then uh, it will 
well, switch to the next one, I guess. Um, and if you want to reduce or increase these figures, you can do that with the retry parameter. So if you want to retry five times, then you just you know, supply that. And the results of my expertise with this small tool, uh, wherever I'm located, my laptop is now connecting automatically to the Wi-Fi slash cable connection previously identified for this location, which is nice if you're at the conference from last year and you re just automatically reconnect if there weren't any changes. So it's nice to uh, just continue where you left off. Uh, currently, I have three places where I have uh, Wi-Fi credentials and two offices uh, where I just have to plug the network cable. Since the ETC APM resume scripts are triggered when I open the lid of the laptop, I just have to make sure that I plug the RJ45 before opening the laptop. For the rest, I do not have to type any commands. OpenBSD do as does it all what I need. Cool. Uh, in hotels, yeah, I think it'd be interesting uh, to have something like this where it identified the network by like the MAC address of the router. Oh yeah, uh, directly because that doesn't change normally. Right, um, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, obviously, that doesn't quite work on you know for my laptop. If it's if the Wi-Fi and the wired both use the same router, it still needs to be able to treat those two differently. Yeah, and you would normally pick the uh, faster one if that one's available. But yeah, it's a good start. And so in hotels or restaurant, I can just connect to the open Wi-Fi thanks to the open box menu, and that will do the NMCTL dash dash scan. Uh, next, steps, next steps are uh, documentation. The tool is missing a lot of documentation. I appreciate OpenBSD for his great documentation, so I have to do the same. Well, that's a good uh, attitude here. Uh, I plan to write a readme and a man page at first instances, but since my laziness, I will do it as soon as I see some interest for this tool from other persons. Okay, um, you've been featured on BSD now. I guess you will not have uh, to wait long for people to try this out. Uh, testing. I am uh, now have to travel and see how to see the script reacts on the different situations. Yeah, expose it to different networks and then see how it works then. Uh, interested persons uh, are welcome to share with me the outcome of their tests. I'm curious how it works and you can find on the webpage that we linked in the show notes the uh, connection or the contact information. Well, that's nice. So little utilities to help you uh, in your networking life. The next story is also about OpenBSD. This is OpenBSD 6.3 on the Edge Router Lite, a simple upgrade method. Yeah, simple upgrade methods always sound good because why make it complicated if you can just use it easily? Uh, the too long didn't read goes, OpenBSD 6.3 Oction upgrade instructions may not factor that your ERL is running from the USB key they want wiped with the mini root 63.file system image loaded on it. So you place the BSD.RD for BSD 6.3 on the SD0i slice used by the U-boot for the kernel and then edit the command prompt to run it. So the biggest story, or basically what this is uh, going to, is that the OpenBSD documentation is comprehensive, but there might be rough corners around what are probably edge cases in the user base. People running the Edge Router Lite hardware, for example, who are looking to upgrade from 6.2 to 6.3. And uh, so the documentation, which gave us everything we need uh, last time for the uh, initial bring-up, I guess, uh, left me with some questions about how to upgrade. In install.octeon, the upgrade section does mention uh, the following parts that you can um, find on the website. 
Well, basically it says the best solution whenever possible is to back up your data and reinstall from scratch. Yeah, not so good if you have already a lot of stuff running on that and a lot of data and well, yeah, it's kind of, it, it would be nice to have this in place. So uh, it continues, I had to check if that directive existed in documentation for other architectures. I wonder if Oction users were getting singled out. We were not. Just no, simplicity. Not that's for everybody. <laughs> yeah, just simplicity and pragmatism. So reading on, to upgrade OpenBSD 6.3 from a previous version, start with the general instructions in the section installing OpenBSD. But that section requires us to boot off of TFT, well, sorry, TFTFP, of course, or NFS, uh, which I don't want to do right now. Because also use a USB stick with the mini root 63.file system installed on it. But as the RL only ha has a single USB port, we would have to remove the USB stick with the current installer on it. Uh, once we get to the install or upgrade prompt, there would be nothing to upgrade. So, well, I guess I could use a USB hub, but the RL's USB port is inside the case with all the screws in and the tools are neatly put away and I'd have to pull the USB hub from behind the workstation and it's 2 a.m. <laughs> and it's cleaned up the cabling in the lab this past weekend. Looks l nice for once. So I don't want to futz around with all that. There must be an almost interchangeably easier way to do this than uh, rather than setting up a TFTP server or NFS share in five minutes, right? So uh, to do that, there's instructions uh, laid out in the blog post and it's quick. And it's not just um, well setting up the whole server. It's it's much easier than setting up the whole TFTP uh, server uh, parts. And well, let's keep that as a uh, surprise for people who are uh, interested in that, and they can dig into it. We have all it in the show notes, and um, yeah, they will find uh, that it's easy to do, and you can get your. Um, little box updated to OpenBSD 6.3. Mm -hmm. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by iX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com slash bsdnow and get the ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source. Yep. Uh, check them out and ask them specifically, I want to build a server for that specific uh, open source application or operating mm -hmm. system even. And they will tell you, oh, we have those specific hardware parts that are supported by the operating system you want to run or this application uses more memory so you should put more memory into it or this application needs more uh, CPU power then they will build you a server exactly for that specific application that the server is intended for and not just something uh, off the shelf uh, yeah, that but every customer just, gets you know if you're going to put some SSDs in your file server for, say, a, uh, a slog in an in a L2 arc, you probably don't want the same kind of SSD for both of those. One, you want small and high endurance. The other, you, you want uh, more capacity and the right thing. And also, you have to consider the amount of L2 arc versus the amount of RAM. If you have too much L2 arc and not enough RAM, you're actually going to make your uh, caching speeds worse uh, than if you just didn't have the L2 arc at all. Um, and so getting your hardware from people that understand that and can validate uh, the configuration you want uh, to make sure you're not 
you know, making a mistake is very helpful. Oh yeah, certainly. And they There's do a lot not of really any hardware vendor that knows more about ZFS. Yes, and uh, integration with the with the hardware is also the important part because the the best ZFS system doesn't work uh, too well if the hard drives are too slow or uh, there's not a good you know ZIL available or right. something else. But IX systems well, have built. You also want the the white glove treatment and the advanced replacement on the failed disks and so on. Right? Mm. Your disks are plotting against you. They are going to fail at the least convenient time possible. Having a hardware supplier that can ship the replacement hard drives directly to the data center and let you ship the failed ones back after instead of before means that you can get your pool back to a, uh, an online state and out of degraded in a couple of days instead of weeks. Mm. And you know that makes your life a lot better because you're not spending uh, a bunch of that time worrying if another drive fails, we lose everything. Yes, and that uh, makes you sleep better at night. And uh, iX Systems is also going to a lot of conferences and events to not only yes. showcase what they have in, uh, to offer, but also they sponsor events. So, but yes, this but one also just uh, representing FreeBSD at a lot of these events. Oh yes, yeah. So uh, they have a lot of stuff uh, from their conferences on their company blog, and uh, the current one is uh, Boys Technology Show 2018 yes. recap. Uh, Boise, so uh, in oh. Idaho, they say every year Fisher Technologies, our Idaho channel partner, holds a one-day technology show. And this year, IX was excited to be a platinum sponsor and the exclusive storage exhibitor. Uh, so they were showing off uh, all of their fancy storage products. Oh, wow, yeah. They, they have a lot to show. Mm-hmm. And if you happen to be at one of those uh, uh, conferences or trade shows, then say hi to the iX Systems folks and talk to them about the future servers you want to buy or some of the backup solutions uh, that you always wanted to do and uh, didn't have time for. And they can probably uh, tell you about their little free NAS Mini uh, for the office or they could also give you the big rack server. Um, it's everything in between those two. Yep. And uh, circling back to the um, ZFS user conference that was a couple of weeks ago, uh, the good people over at Dado have updated the website, zfs.dado.com, uh, with the videos and slides from all the presentations. Yeah, excellent. I specifically look forward to the Z-Standard Z compression talk, but there's other good talks in there. I need yes, to spend a couple they of hours. slides to Microsoft Office. <laughs> oh, and that didn't uh, screw this up too much? That's fine. Okay. Uh, I put it on my to-watch list. <laughs> and, but yes, um, uh, the videos of ooh, all wow. the different talks are there, uh, so it's worth checking out. Excellent. So to top it all off, we have a story about batch editing files with Ed. Oh, wow. Yes, that's so certainly... If you're not familiar with Ed, it is the original editor for Unix. Uh, and uh, you should check out Michael Lucas's book, Ed Mastery. Uh, but if you want to see some interesting things you can do with it, uh, here's a great example over on Julia's blog. Um, so this is, she says... The other day at work, I needed to edit 200 files at once. 
I wanted to Ooh. do something pretty basic. I, I had files that looked like this. So uh, a header foo and then uh, I think it's YAML here and huh. it had uh, bar baz and bananas. Uh, and I wanted to insert an extra line after any line that said baz that says elephant. So the list would now say bar baz elephant bananas. Okay. And that this is in 200 files? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I had an extra weird requirement that was some of the lines uh, would be indented with two spaces and some of them with four spaces. So the dash elephant line needed to have the same indentation as the previous line so that it would line up. Hmm. I didn't feel like writing a program to do this. You know, Perl would be perfect, but I don't really remember how to do Perl. Uh, uh, so I wanted to use a command line tool. Uh, a, VI, or a Vim macro um, could do it, but how do you save a Vim macro to a file again? I forget. I couldn't think of how to do it with said uh, at the time, although in retrospect, I could have done something like this, where you can see they capture the white space before the word baz and then splat it down uh, in the replace there. Um, in a surprising turn of events, I ended up using the ed editor uh, to do this, and it was uh, really easy and simple to do. In this blog post, I'll make uh, the case that if you have something you might uh, normally accomplish with a Vim macro, you might conceivably want to do it with ed instead. Uh, in case you didn't know, uh, the patch tool originally used ed uh, for a lot of stuff. Uh, and some and patch tools bad. still do. <laughs> yep. It, uh, it shows so, the flexibility of that tool, um, mm -hmm. but <laughs> yeah, it's not the tool you would go to uh, as the first as your first resource um yeah, but so it can do that uh, ed is the sort of terrifying text editor uh the typical interaction with ed for me in the past has gone something like starting ed typing help not the question mark h question mark spamming the keyboard nothing uh, then close the terminal <laughs> <laughs> basically uh if you do something wrong ed will just print out a single unhelpful question mark being like what do you want i don't so know i basically dismissed ed as an old arcane unix tool that had no practical use today a vi is a successor to ed ex uh, except for a visual interface instead of this question mark but <laughs> surprise ed is actually sort of cool and fun so if ed is a terrifying thing that only prints question marks at you, uh, why am I writing a big blog post about it? Well, on April 1st of this year, Michael W. Lucas published a new book called Ed Mastery. I like his writing, and even though it was sort of an April Fool's joke, it is also a legitimate, actual, real book. And so I bought it and read it and uh, to see if his claims that ed actually was interesting were true. And... Uh, and it was so cool, I found out how to get Ed to give me better error messages than just a question mark. Uh, and that the name for the grep tool uh, originates from the Ed syntax, where G slash, and then what you're, the regular expression you're searching for is slash P. Um, the basics of how to navigate a file using Ed, and so on. All hmm. of this was cool Unix history, uh, but did not make me feel like I would use Ed in my real life. But the other neat thing about Ed is uh, that the Ed session corresponds to a script that you can replay. So 
Uh, if I know ed, I can use ed basically as a way to simply apply a vim macro-like program to some files. So in this case, uh, search for Baz, copy and paste that line, and then replace Baz with elephant, and then save and quit. Uh, so we can translate uh, into an ed script of slash Baz uh, dot t dot, uh, which will copy the line and paste it on the next line, then search and replace Baz with elephant, and then save and quit. Uh, note, Ed doesn't actually have comments. Those comments are just uh, for you to understand what these random letters mean. <laughs> but then if you just cat that Ed script and pipe it into Ed a file, it will run the script on the file. Okay. So it turns out and... Ed is at least a little bit useful. <laughs> a little uh, it was bit, super yeah, surprising well... and delightful for me to find a practical use for Ed. To me, the most compelling thing about Ed is that I use... Uh, simple Vim macros a lot, and it's a decently direct way to translate those Vim macros into a way to batch edit a bunch of files. I'm definitely not going to go telling everyone that they should be using ed, and it's definitely not very user-friendly, but I think it's neat. Uh, and if you're interested, they, uh, she highly recommends you buy Ed Mastery uh, from Michael Lucas. Yes, that's your source uh, if you want to dig deeper into that editor and uh, yeah learn more things like that time for the beastie bits this week uh, we have a nice segment into uh, freebsd mastery jails uh, since we just mentioned michael w lucas this is apparently happening in the future at least it's on its writing schedule uh, jails help make it happen so uh, yep. uh, so michael on his blog says, I've been scurrying to finish the book Git Sync Murder, the sequel to Git Commit Murder, uh, so that it would be available for purchase at BSD Can. Sadly, this isn't going to happen. I are disappointed. Um, if I've been writing anything else, it could have been done, but the numbers show that these cozy mysteries uh, are not my natural form. Most of the time, I top out at about 500 words per hour, as opposed to the 1,000 words per hour I achieve writing my normal fiction involving flamethrowers and bare-knuckle amateur <laughs> dentistry. <laughs> uh, for the record, I am fine with the speed. Uh, quality beats speed any day. Uh, I am therefore falling back on my usual writing schedule of one and a half to two hours per day on fiction and the rest of the day on nonfiction. Per my 2018 schedule, it's time to start writing FreeBSD Mastery Jails. I've been idly assembling the parts over the last couple of months. Uh, for you folks who've said you want to sponsor it, uh, you have the choice of sponsoring the ebook or the print edition. Depending on how the book comes out, I might do a second Jails book. Uh, print sponsors on this book will have the option to sponsor the second book at a reduced rate. Those who sponsor both will receive a special Jail-themed recognition. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it'll be uh, completely depending on how complex the book is. The goal is okay. always the best book. Yeah, I was just going for the, you know, sponsored by with within the book, no extra stuff. But yeah, mm -hmm. if it helps make that happen, then uh, yeah. And, and a jails book is uh, definitely needed because you can do a lot of things in uh, jails, which you probably don't know. And uh, yeah. It's good that Michael is starting to write that. 
Uh, next up is, oh, more OpenZFS news. We have OpenZFS Basics uh, presented by George Wilson and Matt Ahrens at scale uh, 16 uh, back in March. So mm -hmm. this is the recording of their uh, presentation. And yeah, this uh, gives you some OpenBS, uh, no, OpenBSD, OpenZFS Basics. Uh, if you haven't heard about this file system by now, it's a good uh, introduction. And uh, yeah. Dragonfly... Uh, you know, oh. It's also a good basis if you uh, wanted to give a similar talk at uh, another conference. Uh, who better to crib a intro to ZFS from than like two of the people that have written the most code in ZFS? <laughs> yeah, that's a good introduction. Um, yeah, watch that one and uh, maybe learn something you didn't know before. Yes, and then uh, a Twitter conversation I had the other day has turned into some code in Dragonfly BSD. So Bill Yuan, uh, who works on the IPFW3, I think they call it, uh, uh, the IPFW version in Dragonfly BSD, has added his new uh, high-speed lockless in-kernel NAT instead of using libalias to do the uh, NAT translation. Hmm. Uh, so he doesn't okay. have benchmarks on how big of a difference it makes yet, uh, and there isn't matching documentation just yet, uh, but uh, the new data structures are there, and it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Uh, I'm mostly interested in what it ends up looking like and how hard that might be to port to FreeBSD. Yeah, for the code base has, uh, I think, a bit diverged uh, between the different yes. uh, um, BSDs. But it's mostly... You know, libalias hasn't really gotten a lot of love in FreeBSD land, uh, and it'd be good to see if there's some way to make it better. Mm -hmm. Okay. See what uh, you can start with uh, just a simple reply on Twitter. Uh, next up, as we have a love letter to OpenBSD on Reddit. Oh wow! Should I read that one? Mm -hmm. Okay. We were young. You at version two point eight, and I, a high school freshman. I played with DOS, Windows, and BOS before, but you, you were different. You were my first real love, the first one I really took the time to understand. You were so accommodating, always a man page away from resolving any misunderstanding. I didn't know how good I had it, really. I discovered Linux and took off chasing the next big thing, always hopping from distro to distro, spending all my time fighting with her myriad interfaces, unable to truly commune. Maybe you just spoiled me, but I feel like I've been chasing an illusory image, a promise that never comes true. Then I saw you on a client's web server, and all the memories came flooding back. It all made sense, and you just, you just felt like home. I wrote to you, I wrote you to a USB stick, brought you home, and although we've both changed, we settled in like we never broke up. I love you, OpenBSD, and I hope we never lose each other again. Wow, is that not a nice way of telling you that this is a cool operating Slightly system? Get, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just the way I presented it, but yeah. This yep. <laughs> and there's a whole Reddit thread about that. If you want to keep going. Yeah, people have been replying, and uh, yeah. Have you ever seen a love letter to Windows like that? Probably yep. not, so yeah let's leave it at that. circling back to something only marginally more sane michael lucas <laughs> uh he's got <laughs> some of his recent talks have been posted uh so he's got 
video from his recent uh, Michigan user group visit is now online. He has a ZFS introduction as well as a brief talk about the Ed Mastery book. And he says, I originally planned to talk about Ed, but the ZFS talk went too long. That first speaker was a real blabbermouth. <laughs> Uh, instead, they asked me to talk about why the book was a secret, how I arranged sponsorship for that book, and how the various versions of that book came to be. Uh, he says, this talk is a little rough because I wasn't prepared to give it. I completely winged the whole thing. Uh, it's also the first talk uh, where I dropped the F-bomb live and on camera because I have, uh, I have to rehearse my talks beforehand if I want to eliminate the cussing. Uh, so my talk for BSD Can 2017 is on the OpenBSD web stack, and that's now available for viewing on Amazon, or YouTube as well. It appears uh, just a couple of weeks ago, but uh, Lucas hadn't seen it since then. So he's updated his uh, personal YouTube playlist with all the places where you can watch him on video, uh, including some older talks he found and some BSD Now interviews. Oh yeah, that's uh, the record. Should interview so, him in the future. Yeah, I'm sure we will have to talk to him about a Git Sync murder when it comes out and uh, uh, Absolute FreeBSD when it comes out and FreeBSD Master Jails. So yep. uh, he's going to have to hide from us. <laughs> <laughs> yep, uh, we'll, we'll chase after him. Okay, um, <laughs> we also have practical Unix manuals for you, MDoc. Of course, this is over at the MDoc uh Homepage, I guess, uh, manpage.bsd.lv. And uh, yeah, this is basically telling you what MDoc is all about. And so, yeah, it starts off with a utility without a manual is no utility or is of no utility at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, this <laughs> totally. is a guide to writing Unix manual pages in the MDoc language. If you're new to writing Unix manuals or you want to learn about best practices for high quality manuals, uh, this book may benefit your work. And it has examples and kind of walks through not just what the layout of a man page would be and the markup, but actually how to write a good man page. Oh, wow. This is long. Oh, wow. Right. This is, and questions to ask yourself uh, as you're working on it. You know, did I describe the calling syntax of the command? Did I describe what each of those flags and arguments means? Did I describe the command's operation and what it does? Did I describe what the exit status are and what they mean and when will I will get these? And uh, did I describe any files or environment variables that the program depends on so that you can change them? Mm -hmm. Cool. This is pretty comprehensive. I think we should mm -hmm. link uh, from our FreeBSD documentation primer to that one. For sure. If we, if we haven't done so already, uh, I know a couple of mentees of mine who it's, would be it's happy a whole to book. do that. Yeah. So as a reference for people who just want to know, how do I do this again? Um, yeah, it's uh, a good reference source. All right. So uh, the MDoc uh, people are certainly the ones who know about uh, Unix man pages. We have more BSD meetups happening. Um, so this has become uh, regular things in certain cities. So the first uh, that we have is the BSD meetup in Zurich. Uh, that's actually tomorrow from yep, the day we're this recording. This is third meetup and uh, they'll be meeting uh, in Zurich on Thursday, May 24th at uh, seven o'clock. Um, the previous two were held at the uh, Helvety Diner. Uh, so they're using that as a starting point. 
and you know, ask uh, any of your colleagues or friends that are interested to also come and join us. And then yeah. uh, the same night, uh, if you happen to be in Poland, uh, the first meetup of the Polish uh, BSD user group, uh, uh, sponsored by Real Systems and our friends over there, uh, will be held again. Uh, that's Thursday, May 24th, which is tomorrow, and there starts at 6.30. Uh, they're currently scheduled presentations. First, uh, Conrad is going to give an introduction to the FreeBSD project. Then uh, Marius is going to talk about the checkpoints feature in ZFS. And then uh, Rortec uh, will talk about the Cubes OS uh, and what that is. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So, so uh, let's hope the there will be slides there. later. The, the Kaepernick office buildings in uh, Warsaw. Oh, nice. Yeah, so let's hope we get slides later on or some kind of recap and maybe this becoming a regular thing so that people in exactly. uh, Poland or Warsaw can go to that one if they're interested in the BSDs. Uh, and last but not least, uh, there isn't much yet, but at least we have the announcement for MeetBSD 2018, uh, which is at over at meetbsd.com. Uh, there's just, uh, it's coming, it's out, and we'll keep you updated if there's more detailed information, but at least it's been uh, announced it will happen. The tweet they had earlier actually had the... Uh, had more infos, yeah. So the website the isn't just up to the latest. Get that for us quick here. Uh, MeetBSD will be in Santa Clara on October 19th and 20th. Mm -hmm. So if you have a bit of holiday time left and don't know what to do, we might as well join us at the BSD uh, conference called MeetBSD. Yes, so uh, it'll be co-sponsored by Intel, who's donating the venue. Um, we'll be at Intel Santa Clara campus, 3600 the, Juliet Lane in uh, is, Santa Clara, California. Isn't that the headquarter? I don't know. Oh, wow. Okay. Anyway, uh, Intel is <laughs> October exciting. 19th and 20th. Uh, in building SC12. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I guess there will be more information about you know hotels and how to get there. Yes, uh, all that yesterday. will be coming soon, but we now have the date so that uh, you can make sure not to plan to go anywhere else. Yeah, block that uh, in your calendar. If you're a developer, you probably want to keep the day before free as well because I think that's when we might have a developer summit. I don't know if there's a developer summit yet, but there, there are there's usually plans. something. There, there are people, uh, I think they will try to organize something like that. Yep. So before we go into our feedback and questions section, we should uh, mention our sponsor for that part, which is tarsnap.com, the online backups for the truly paranoid. Because you know, you need to know that backups are important and you should make regular backups. But then you are like, eh, well, where should I put all these files? Uh, Tarsnap is a solution for that because it encrypts locally your uh, files you want to send up and then the encrypted parts end up in the uh, Amazon cloud and no one else who does not have the key cannot decrypt it because, well, yes. no key, You no have access. the only copy of the key so only you can make use of the backups that are in Amazon once you restore them. Um, and that's what you want because if Anybody, if, if the files are only encrypted once they get to the cloud or something, somebody could steal them or uh, subpoena the backup provider and take the keys and all the kinds of nasty stuff. But if you 
uh, encrypt it all on your machine before you send it, then that can't happen. And the other part is you need to be able to trust the application you're running, that it isn't also taking a copy of your key and sending it off to them or anything evil like that. But that's why with Tarsnap, the client source code is available for you to inspect and compile yourself. Yeah, but just in case. The best part about Tarsnap is it's all pay for exactly what you use. There are no fees and no minimum costs or fixed costs, anything. You just pay 25 cents a gigabyte for the storage and 25 cents a gigabyte uh, for the bandwidth. Yeah, and some of the code that was uh, used to write Tarsnap is also available on the Tarsnap website. There's the script key derivation function, the Kivaloo data store, and the spipe-d secure pipe daemon, which you can also um, use. As it turns out, that all three of the major um, open source things that uh, are were put together to make uh, Tarsnap are open sourced and available, right? So they have like those three you mentioned, but also lots of patches to libarchive for the tar support and uh, yes, so the call um, is done on FreeBSD. You can also look for bugs in the code, but uh, it will probably not going to be something you will find because it has been scrutinized a couple of uh, times. And um, there's also a bug bounty if you find if you do find something, you will get a bit of money depending on how big the issue is. Um, but uh, it's it's clean code. It's something you can yeah, trust. And they have a nice scale from right. uh, $1 for cosmetic errors in the source code, like a typo, up to $2,000 if you find a bug that allows someone to intercept traffic uh, or decrypt a TouchSnap user's data uh, in a pre-release version. Uh, all the bug bounties are doubled if you catch them uh, in a beta mm -hmm. to try to incentivize people to look at uh, the betas uh, and try to find the bugs before they get released. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so check out Tarsnap and uh, yeah, start backing up. Um, our feedback and questions uh, start this week with uh, Seth uh, with a first-time Poudrière builder question. Uh, that one goes, uh, Hi, Alan and Benedict. I'm setting up my first Poudrière build system after hearing Alan talk about it multiple times. Do you guys have any recommendations for a newbie other than just have lots of virtual CPUs? Thanks and love the show. Um, depending on your use case, uh, not virtualizing it is probably faster than virtualizing it. Um, and then it can also be very IO dependent. Uh, so make sure you have fast disks or something so that you're, uh, it's not waiting all the time to read data from the disk or write data to the disk. Uh, but in general, yeah, it just works very nicely. Um, uh, if your computer's not as fast, it just takes longer, but it still works. Yep. Uh, so start with the... just rebuilt our custom package repo that has uh, grown to about 900 packages now, so it takes a little longer than it used to when it was only 250 packages. Well, we used to have three separate repos for different roles, but then we just rolled it all into one big one because it's easier to have everything in one repo. Yeah. You start know, with an really, easy port... The thing I like best about FreeBSD is that I don't have to go and add a bunch of different repos to get stuff, right? You get yes. the, the, the real, the main line FreeBSD repo, and it's like, here's 30,000 binary packages, just package install what you want, not, oh, you need the non-free repo, you got to go do this, and you need the, oh, the not LTS repo, you got to do And then that. you have to catch the, the signing key first, and then make sure that it or matches. it's and... even signed, and then it's like, just like, oh my god, well, how did this Just do package installs, yeah. 
So yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we both uh, know how this feels. Um, so yeah, uh, start easy with a simple port and then once you get this running and um, then move from there. Okay. There's, um, uh, you just create a jail for the version of FreeBSD you want to compile the packages for and you create a ports tree uh, of which version of ports you want to compile and then you just run the bulk command. It's pretty straightforward. Yep, uh, look at the monitoring that it provides, and then you can see it happily chucks along. All right, um, that's the Purdue question. Um, the next one is from Farhan, why we didn't go FreeBSD? Okay, that one goes, hi guys, I met you both at VBSDCon, hope you're doing well, thanks. We hope you do as well as we do. Um, hopefully we see you there next year again. Uh, I want to tell you of the tale of why my attempts to run FreeBSD in multiple environments were all dismissed. In short, the major reason FreeBSD is underused is because it fails to provide a clean user experience that conceals the machinery and its awesome capabilities. I'm with a team that got access to a fairly large playground environment, a powerful Dell server with one terabyte of RAM, a few terabytes of disk, and more CPU cores than US states. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's cool. Uh, certainly, that can do a lot of stuff. Uh, so the entire purpose of this device is to experiment with various virtual machines, learn new technologies, databases, general testing, etc. It's definitely overkill, and we have a lot of latitude on what we can do with it. So first things first, what hypervisor should we run on this device? I recommend that FreeBSD's Beehive paired with Veil, Bridges, and ePairs. We played around with it, and it did everything we needed, but it was ultimately rejected for ESXi. Why? Because ESXi interface was clean, intuitive, and easy to use, whereas Beehive at all required a lot of manual commands. We have varying levels of Unix experience, experience, and some people are just not comfortable with multiple cryptic commands and prefer a simple web GUI. Well, well we Ember yeah, has... Well, you know, Beehive would need another 10 years of work, and, you know, you don't want to know how much money VMware has spent making ESX, ESXi the way it is. Um, yeah. So it's not very fair to compare them. Sure. And, yeah, if you need a GUI tool, then... I think there's nothing going around uh, ESXi or some other GUI uh, tools for that. But if you want the simplicity of the command line and fire up a couple of commands with just a few commands and don't click all the time, then Beehive is certainly an option. So second, uh, we need an environment to run various pre-built Docker containers. Note, not zones, jails, or even C groups. Docker containers. Docker on FreeBSD is still experimental. Moreover, with someone looking over my shoulder, it failed to pull down a container which did not make my case easier. So we went with CoreOS. Aren't there instructions on the FreeBSD wiki we uh, haven't published? I have no idea. I've, I've never tried it, to do so, Docker. Um, yeah, it's going to become more interesting with the whole uh, Kubernetes and stuff. Um, I've seen some things um, at my department where someone demonstrated that to me, um, which looked interesting but it's still in development and the apis keep changing and uh, yeah so we'll have to see how that works um but yeah that's that thing uh we were working on setting up an application that would run on a public facing host so security was of the utmost importance and we take defense in depth very seriously but when we learned freebsd does not have aslr it was immediately dismissed We'd have gone with OpenBSD, but LibreSSL is not FIPS uh, 140-2 compliant, which would eventually become a requirement in production. I proposed HardenBSD, but it was seen as an obscure fork of FreeBSD, whose future is unknown. 
I know that's inaccurate, but sometimes perception matters more than reality. So some of the decision processes here are a bit um, strange for me because the criteria should be um, put forth before you do the selection, not while you present something, then, oh, that's not meeting our requirements. So I think that's um, one of the things here. Uh, but okay, the only implementation... But, you know, um, ASLR is not that useful. I wouldn't be rejecting solutions just because of it. But anyway. It's not the only feature in security land and um, it's not it's it's helpful but it's not the killer feature which prevents every uh, security thing from happening. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's definitely not um, yeah, it's the way it is at the moment at least. Uh, the only implementation FreeBSD saw was SPFSense. Besides that, everything else was CentOS, Ubuntu or Windows Server. So uh, I love FreeBSD, but there is an overemphasis on chasing novel features and seemingly zero effort on user experience. Well, and also stability and you know cleanness of the code. Well, and all it comes down to comparing it to uh, CentOS, which is basically Red Hat. So um, all of this money gets poured into a user experience. Although I don't think CentOS ships with any web GUIs by default. Uh, so the argument's a little weird there. Uh, and <laughs> But same with Ubuntu. Canonical's pouring all this money into it, but nobody's doing that for FreeBSD. So it's... But yes, FreeBSD has an emphasis on things people want to work on. That's mm. the nature of open source. Yeah. But yeah, it goes on. A simple web interface goes a long way. FreeBSD had jailed since at least 2000, but failed to produce a clean interface such as Docker. I wouldn't call Docker a clean interface, but I understand <laughs> the point you are making. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I would have answered the same. <laughs> um, but yeah, the multitude of hacked shell scripts, jail front ends are great, but not sufficient when you need an infrastructure of redundant containers. And while there may be solutions out there, it is one solution among many other standards. Isn't that the same in Linux land? So, okay. This allowed for Linux to come out with C groups and Docker and conquer the market. Well, that they already had because of just market share. Okay, this uh, while FreeBSD's Docker implementation using jail is not production ready. The one place we did implement it, PFSense, was because it was easy to use and powerful. Personally speaking, even I prefer VirtualBox over Beehive or QMU because I like the interface. FreeBSD has massive untapped potential and frequently has years of lead time but fails to create clean user experiences. I have a lot of other thoughts on things we're not chasing that could increase our market share and bring in new developers. Uh, but that should be enough for now. Just a bit of constructive criticisms. Uh, Follow-up. As silly as this may sound, I initially went with FreeBSD over OpenBSD because I preferred its console font, the box prompt versus the line. Is there a way to change OpenBSD's default terminal font? No idea. You have to ask the OpenBSD people. I think there are ways. I've seen different terminal... Um, I know there's a way to change the font on FreeBSD now. I don't know what it is, but I know there is a way. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, while I agree with all of this, um, mostly it's there would need to be a, a company that wanted to take FreeBSD and build the you know container front end onto it. Um, it's not something that is going to really come out of open source, I don't think. Yeah, and there are other ways or other areas where FreeBSD shines, and um, that is probably not mentioned often enough or it's not in the limelight that often. So it's it's not the only criteria for companies. I mean, this may, may be a bit um, specific, but yeah. 
Let's okay. uh, go on to the next question. Moving on. Um, architect writes us about encryption feedback. Ooh, wow. Uh, that goes, hey guys, while listening to the last episode, which was recorded on uh, July 4th, uh, I was nope, curious about... April 4th. Oh, sorry. Oh, how could I Not get Not recorded July? in the future. I'm, <laughs> I'm ahead of myself. Stop I'm giving away the time travel secrets. <laughs> How do you think FreeBSD is so many years ahead of everybody all the time? Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> technology from the future. Um, okay. uh, I was curious about some of the reasoning behind the hashing algorithms recommended. I know that this may not necessarily be in your wheelhouse, so wild speculation is fine if need be. Do you know if there's a technical reason to use SHA2 over Whirlpool for message digests? Um, is this a more... Uh, uh, is, most, it's the cryptographic right answers blog post remember that one yeah yeah uh mostly because sha2 has had a lot more cryptanalysis done against it than whirlpool whirlpool is kind of off in the weeds okay well i guess security people it's, can it's just more that I, I would say sha has been tested more so yeah, they have more confidence around mm-hmm uh, is it more secure somehow or is it just more popular due to being the standardized function set well you don't standardize something that you don't think it's right. good it's so, it's not yeah. that it's popular it's that it's been tested more is why they would recommend it yep uh in other realms i've been working on setting up a mail server on hardenbsd using open smtpd and dovcot i think i've got the software configured properly but i uh wary uh to actually enable them yet because i'm not sure what certs and dns records i should set or get set up for a secure mail system this is purely for personal use, so stability isn't a huge issue, uh, nor is data loss while experimenting with configuration. Well, you're saying that now, but once you have it running, you like it so much, you uh, move more important data to it. But yeah, uh, are you aware of any guides that cover the entire process of establishing a personal mail server? Didn't we cover a couple of mail server setups in recent episodes? Yeah, we definitely covered those before. But in general, uh, if you install OpenSMTPD in DevCot and then use Let's Encrypt to generate the cert... Uh, that's pretty much everything other than, I guess, DNS, you have to set MX records that say mail for this domain should go to this server. Hmm. Yeah, so I've been using several different sources so far, including Wikipedia, but the lack of any comprehensive guide makes it sound mostly like uh, black magic. Uh, step one, install the server. Step two, do everything else. <laughs> any help or guides would be greatly appreciated since having my own mail server like that would greatly reduce my reliance on proprietary services. Thanks in advance. Yeah, that's an interesting point he'd make there. I've seen lots of mail server tutorials that involve setting up the mail server, and I don't think most of them bother telling you how to create the MX record to actually cause the mail for your domain to go to the server. Mm. It's just kind of assumed that you can handle that part. Yeah. Well, you, you, you would need a guy that basically starts, what kind of hardware do you need? And then well, move from uh, there. For a mail server nowadays, you don't. <laughs> yeah, the uh, 512 megabyte RAM VM is fine. Which would just do the it's trick. It's not like the fun. old days where a mail server was actually like one of the biggest machines on your network because they <laughs> had to read and write all these files constantly. Yeah. But yeah, but since like going through the install and configuration and then so the whole thing until you really flip the switch and say, let's send mail through this and make it a production system. Okay, um, yeah, if people know about certain guides that um, they have found on the internet, then uh, send it to us and we'll put it in the, one of the next shows. 
And uh, last but not least is Dave with a handy tip on setting up automated core dump handling for FreeBSD. Oh, this seems like the core dump episode here. There's a lot of mm -hmm. uh, content about dumping core. Um, so too long didn't read. Um, this is a reference to using FreeBSD text dumps. And you basically add this to ddb.conf, which is um, the script log info equals show logs, show all logs, and show logged v nodes. Okay, log v nodes. Okay. And then basically, uh, when the script or when your system panics, it will enable text dumps, uh, enable capture, grab all the lock information, show all the per CPU information and the current backtrace, all running processes, etc., uh, and then do the dump and reset the system. Mm -hmm. Then uh, in your sysctl.conf, you set up uh, the text dump and alt break to debugger, and it will do. And uh, and your next kernel core dump will be. Uh, digitally auto-converted for you to text and dropped into var crash as usual, uh, and then it'll reboot. Okay, well, that's not quite. Uh, it will write it to swap, and then on boot it'll read it and write it because you can't actually write to var crash during the your system is panicking mode. <laughs> for for reasons, yeah, because the yeah. the I/O system might also be uh, affected. Yes, it's, oh. it's entirely likely that is what's panicked, and so you definitely don't want to be using it to do your writing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this is uh, short enough to to implement, and yeah, thanks for that tip. And that pretty much ends our episode for this week. Uh, again, if you find something on the internet that's interesting in the BSD-related uh, sense, send it to us, as well as questions, comments, uh, anything, stories that you found, and we'll cover it on a future episode if you send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Yes, also, write into feedback at bsdnow.tv and tell us how you are going to celebrate FreeBSD Day on June 19th. Yes, that's coming up. Uh, that's the official FreeBSD Day. And um, if that is something you want to celebrate... You know, how are you going to celebrate that? Yeah, let us know. Maybe some kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, surprise us. 